Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here with us on this July 4th. Happy Independence Day. We are almost exactly, well, a little bit farther than halfway through a sermon series on 1 Timothy that'll take us through the summer. And this week is week four of five weeks in a row with five different preachers. So it's an exciting time. Summer, so the pastors get to take some vacation and uh, those of us other elders get to fill in a new little preaching, which is a delight. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders at Hiawatha. And one of the responsibilities and joys of an elder is uh, getting to preach a few times a year. I would say once or twice a year, because that's what it usually is, but this is already my third time this year, so then I'd be a liar, which we'll see in the passage is bad. So, so I won't say that. But welcome once again. So, uh, first Timothy. Timothy was a guy who worked with Paul, and Paul went around preaching, proclaiming the gospel to different places, starting churches there, and then he would leave people there to kind of grow those churches, help them become healthy, and maintain health. And so Timothy is in Ephesus, which Paul had passed through, and Paul had gone on to some other places. And now Paul is writing a letter to Timothy about some different things of, hey, here's some things you should have in mind as you're leading this church, here's some things to think about, Here's a reminder to stay focused on Christ and not other things, and so on and so forth. All right. Today's sermon is Received with Thanksgiving, from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it, and then we'll walk through it and see what Christ, through Paul, says in this passage. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the word of God. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for both the sober warning in this passage and the great encouragement in this passage. I pray uh, that you would speak to each of us your gospel truth, that you would speak to each of us words that relieve burdens that we're trying to carry that should be given over to you. I pray too, God, that those who are wandering or seeking to depart from the faith in this room would hear the sober warning of the first three verses of 1 Timothy 4 and take that to heart and you would use that to draw them back to you. Thank you for your word and for your love. Amen. All right. Verse 1, so the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. First, note right at the beginning it says the Spirit expressly says, and that's God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So God says some are going to depart from the faith. So if God says it, it's going to happen. This isn't Paul saying, well, maybe if this trajectory continues or maybe someday in the far future it's possible 
that someone might possibly depart from the faith, maybe. No, God says people are going to depart from the faith. And that shouldn't be unexpected. If you know anything about Jesus' ministry on earth, you see that many people flocked to him and followed him, but then throughout his ministry, many left him. And even some of his close core disciples, one of them was his betrayer and betrayed him to the Roman government and to the Jewish religious authorities. So it shouldn't surprise us that some will depart from the faith. Um, the main focus of the passage is not this verse. This can be something, when people hear it, that can cause fear and anxiety in them. Like, well, is that me? Am I one who's going to depart from the faith? How do I know if that happens? Could that happen? I don't want that to happen. How could that happen? The passage is going to talk some about that, but at the end of the sermon, if you're still anxious about that or nervous or have questions about that, please don't hesitate to come talk to me after the service or Peter Carlson, who is leading worship, and other elders here as well. I don't see any others in the room at the moment, but please talk to one of us or feel free to write on your communication card, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to a pastor more about this. Jesse said this and it was a little confusing. I'm a little worried about it. We don't want people to leave with that fear. Now, to feel some of the weight that this is a real thing that can happen, that's good to feel if it leads you back to Christ. If it leads you to just shut down, to kind of move internally, to have that fear just grow, that's bad. But to feel things like that, that are weighty, that are uncomfortable in Scripture, is a good thing if it leads us to Christ. So, please keep that in mind. So some will depart from the faith. Two things to look at here. The faith now, this is not just personal belief or understanding of the gospel. That's part of it. So, for individuals, it's that. But the faith, as Peter preached last week, is also the household of God, the church. So, when Paul here is talking about some departing from the faith, he's not just saying they're going to intellectually change their mind or their heart's going to change. They're going to personally reject Christ. He's saying they're also going to leave the church. They're going to reject the household of God, the community of faith. The church is a family. And Peter preached last week, sometimes family is messy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes family members hurt you. Sometimes there are family members, hopefully not immediate family members, but there are family members you might not like or might not like as well. The church is a family. Sometimes the church is going to hurt you. Hopefully not intentionally, not maliciously, but it happens because we're all sinners. There may be people in the church that you don't like quite as well as other people. But leaving the faith, departing from the faith in this passage, it's not just something personal. That's you, things you think, things you feel, things you believe. It's leaving the body. If you're in a place we're going to see here in the passage, people that are questioning, they're hearing different teachings they haven't heard before and thinking, is this true? How do I weigh if this is true? If you're in a place like that, if you're struggling with your faith, if you're questioning things about your faith, one of the worst things you can do in that situation is to think, think to yourself, I have to figure this out on my own. So I'm going to take a break from church, I'm going to take a break from other believers, and I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to study scripture myself, or read other things, or do whatever to figure it out. That's one of the worst things you can do. God did not design people to operate independently of other people. God designed people to be in relationship with other people. God designed us as believers to be in the church. And this is a place where you can struggle. We say often, 
whoever's preaching. Often we say when we're preaching, we'll preach about something that's hard and we'll say, now on the elder team, we have agreement on this. But you can be at Hiawatha and disagree with this and be a part of this faith community. There are certain things like Jesus is God, he died for our sins, things like that. If you reject that, well, then you're not a Christian. But there are many other things that there's disagreement on and you can hold those things in disagreement. This is a place where you can struggle, where you can question. That's what this is for, partly. When we sing, when we preach, it's not just because we like the music and we like the songs. It's not just because God tells us that's what we should do. It's so we get reminders of the truth in a world that assaults us with lies every day. That's what community groups are for. So you have smaller communities, people at Hiawatha, a group that you know better, that you know more deeply, that you, can, that you hopefully feel more comfortable with and feel you can be real with, that you can share struggles with, that they can pray for you, that they can encourage you throughout the week, that you can struggle through things together. So please, if you are struggling, if you are wrestling, if you are questioning, which all of us do at different times, all of us have done that, all of us will do that again. Life is difficult sometimes, life is painful, and things come up that cause those questions. In those situations, do not think to yourself, the best thing I can do is take a break from church and figure this out on my own. Think to yourself, I need help to figure this out. I need people that I can trust that I can say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Hey, I'm really confused about this. Hey, can you help me with this? And sometimes they might say, I don't actually know how to help you with this, but I can connect you with someone who can. Each individual here at Hiawatha will not necessarily have all the answers, but as a body, we can connect each other with different people. The second thing, the word depart which means either to deviate from or to leave, especially to start a journey. You see a trend these days among uh, the church, Christianity, quote-unquote, people who decide they're going to go on a faith journey, that they're going to re-examine and deconstruct things that they've been taught, that they believe. And again, they kind of do this by pulling back from the church, pulling back from community, pulling back from God's word and kind of go off on their own and do it. They in doing that, they're deviating from truth. They're leaving truth. That is not a journey that you want to take because the end of that journey is hell. The end of that journey is separation from God. That is not the road you want to walk down. Now, the questions and the struggles that prompt those journeys, those are good things to address and deal with. But again, within the church, in the community of faith. Sobering, isn't it? Spirit says some will depart from the faith. So then you might ask, how? What could cause someone to depart from the faith? Why would that happen? How can that happen? Paul talks about that. He goes on to say, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. People of Hiawatha or people sitting in the room visiting who are not people of Hiawatha yet, although we hope you will be, People listening, what are you devoted to? What are you giving yourself over to? What commands the majority of your time, of your resources, of your talent? What is the thing or the couple things in life around which you orient the rest of your life? What are you devoted to? We know what those who depart from the faith are devoted to. Demonic teaching and deceitful spirits. 
And Paul's going to talk about what that teaching is, so we won't touch on that yet, but he'll talk about what that demonic teaching actually is. But deceitful spirits. So think about this. People are departing from the faith, and they're devoting themselves, they're giving themselves over to guides. But these guides are demonic, deceitful spirits. The guides they've chosen in their departure are unreliable, are uninterested in those they're guiding. They don't care. They don't care about the people. They don't desire a good outcome for you. 1 Peter 5.8 says that not only do they not desire a good outcome for you, they desire your destruction. John 8.44, Jesus says, when Satan speaks and when demons speak, when they lie, they speak their native language. Any of you who've ever learned or attempted to learn a foreign language know it's difficult. It's easier to speak your native language than it is to speak another language. Because you've done it your whole life. You do it without even thinking of it. You don't think as you're composing sentences, okay, what are the grammar rules? What's the word order? How do I do this? No, you just do it because you've always done it. When Satan lies and when demons lie, they're speaking their native tongue. Those are the words that come to mind quickly that flow smoothly from their lips. Those are the words they don't have to reach for or grasp for. They've done it since the beginning. They're really good at it. It's their native tongue. It's easy for them. And these are what those departing from the faith are devoting themselves to. These are what they're giving themselves over to, to guides that don't care about them, that want to destroy them, that lie to them. Then you might ask, how could people get to this point? How could people get to the point where they would just devote themselves to deceitful spirits, to teachings of demons? Especially remember, these are people in the church. So it's not like they've never heard of Satan or they've never heard of deceit or heard of lies and they're like, oh wow, this just happened. I had no idea this even existed. No, these are things they're to some degree familiar with. So how does this happen? How does this departing, this devoting come to pass? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So, here's what we've got in verses 1 and 2. Paul's saying, all right, you've got people departing from the faith. And that's happened because they've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teaching. And that devotion, those deceitful spirits, that demonic teaching has come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there's people in the church in Ephesus, these liars in verse 2, who are insincere and whose consciences have been seared, and they're teaching and proclaiming demonic teaching, the teachings of deceitful spirits, things that are lies, things that are false. And there are other people who are hearing this, becoming devoted to it, and then departing from the faith. Look at what it says about these liars in verse 2. First, that they're insincere, which makes sense, right? Because they're following the demonic teaching, they're following the deceitful spirits. So if they're following spirits that are deceitful, of course they're going to be insincere. Of course they're going to be liars, because that's what they're following, and they're going to become like what they follow. These liars are people who seem like believers on the outside, They look like it on the outside. Jesus in the Gospels refers to people like this as wolves in sheep's clothing. So they're among the sheep, 
And if you look, they look like a sheep because they've got the sheep disguise on, but inside they're wolves. They seem like believers, but they aren't. They're following Satan. But also, they have seared consciences. So we're in 1 Timothy 4 today. In 1 Timothy 1, 5, 1, 19, and 3, 9, Paul also talks about consciences. And he talks about, in those verses, having a good conscience, a conscience that's clear, a conscience that's free of guilt. And the way that happens is because of Jesus Christ. So those who believe in Christ, who know that Christ has done all the work for them on the cross, that he's saved them from sin, that he's reconciled them to God, that he's fixed the biggest problem that they had in their life, which is sin separating them from God, that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave has overcome that, now their consciences are clear and their consciences are freed because they know it's not up to them to do enough good things to make God pleased with them. It's not up to them to live a certain way or look a certain way so that they can spend eternity with God. They know that Christ did all that. Christ came and lived a certain way. Christ came and did certain things and didn't do certain things. And God looked at that and was pleased with that. And then Christ died and rose from the dead. And those who believe, God the Father says, yeah, you haven't done any of that stuff, but Christ did it. And you're trusting in that for salvation. And I accept that because Christ did it perfectly. In contrast to that, Those with seared consciences, they're aware of their hypocrisy and guilt. That's why their consciences are seared. They know that they're liars. They know, to some degree, that they're following demonic, deceitful things. And so their consciences are seared like they've been branded with a hot iron. They know that they're being hypocritical. They know that there's guilt. They know that they're not trusting Christ. They feel the weight of trying to do good things, trying to be good enough. Titus 1.15, another letter that Paul writes, he says there that these insincere liars with seared consciences, that their consciences and their minds are not only seared, but they've been defiled with demonic and deceitful teaching. All they feel is guilt, is hypocrisy, is defilement. Their hearts and their minds have been twisted and warped. If you're sitting here this morning and you have that guilt, that hypocrisy, that weight of that, know that Jesus Christ frees us from that. Jesus Christ takes all guilt, frees us from all hypocrisy. He cleanses from all defilement, from all deceit, from all demonic teaching and influence. Jesus Christ is stronger than Satan. He's stronger than the insincere liars with seared consciences. He's stronger than your sin. He's stronger than your seared conscience. He's stronger than my sin and my seared conscience. So you might ask, okay, like I kind of see how this can happen. We've seen how the devotion comes about, that there are these liars who are propagating this, and that's how people hear about it. But what are these teachings of demons, these deceitful spirits? Like what are they actually saying? Let's look at that in verse 3. And it's not what you might think. Paul says, what do these liar, insincere liars with seared consciences proclaim? They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Is that what you expected when you heard the phrase demonic teaching? Or did you think it would be some weird supernatural thing, like they say that people should go out in the woods and sacrifice animals and pray to Satan or something like that? No, 
It's subtle. Look at this example of how good Satan is at lying. He doesn't do something bombastic and supernatural that people would reject. He does something that feels almost right, a little half-truth, which is the same thing he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When God had said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree, and then Satan comes and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? And Eve says, actually, he said we can't eat from it or touch it, which God didn't say. He never said they couldn't touch it. They had added rules to it. And then Satan, once he knows that, takes advantage of that, if you keep reading in Genesis 3, and he twists that and uses that to deceive Adam and Eve into thinking they can basically be their own God and replace God's role in their life with themselves. So here, what is the demonic teaching? Forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from food. This is what the insincere liars with seared consciences are proclaiming. They're proclaiming rules, work, things people have to do. You have to not get married. You have to not eat this food and this food and that food. They're proclaiming externally visible actions that make you look good on the outside to some degree in some ways. But it doesn't do anything about the real problem, which is internal. So if this is the demonic teaching, if this is false, if this is a lie, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from food, what is the truth? The truth is that God created marriage and God created food. And God created marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving. If you're sitting in the room today and you're married, realize that your marriage is a gift from God for you to receive with thanksgiving, for you to enjoy. And of course, there are times in marriage that are difficult, both because you and your spouse are both sinners and because we live in a fallen world. But marriage is a gift from God to be received with thanksgiving. Food is a gift from God to be received with thanksgiving. It is not just bad or wrong or unbiblical. It is demonic to tell people you can't, as a Christian, good Christians don't eat this food. Good Christians don't eat that food. Now this is different than like if you have a child and they're allergic to peanuts, telling your child, Jimmy, you can't eat peanuts. That's not what this is talking about. That's not demonic. That's good. That's looking out for your child's health. Because you're not doing that saying, Jimmy, don't eat peanuts so that God thinks better of you. Or so you're a better person. Or so you're more holy. You're, doing, you're saying, Jimmy, don't eat peanuts so you don't go into anaphylactic shock and die. <laughs> so that's not what this is talking about. And this is not talking about people who choose not to eat certain foods for other reasons. Maybe they don't like the taste. Or they want to eat foods that are healthier or whatever the reason may be. Or they like foods from a certain culture or a certain style of food. Those things are fine. Paul's not saying here, you have to eat all foods. He's saying, when you say that not eating certain foods makes you more holy, or God loves you more, or God thinks better of you, that is evil. That is demonic. People of Hiawatha, you can eat nothing but vegan and organic to the glory of God. And you can eat nothing but fast food to the glory of God. It does not matter. Paul says in another place, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. He says it doesn't matter what you eat, it doesn't matter what you drink. Eat the food you want to eat, drink the drink you want to drink. That's not what 
life is about. That's not what Christ is ultimately about. That's not what the gospel is about. It's about the work of Jesus Christ. The same with marriage. If you're sitting in this room and you're not married and you want to be someday, that's great. Don't think to yourself, oh, if I stay single, that's more holy because then I'm showing I don't need a spouse. I just rely only on God. You think people who are married don't have to rely on God? Ask someone who's married after the service. And if they're honest with you, they'll tell you it, just ta- it takes just as much reliance on God in marriage as it does out of marriage. It looks different, and the reliance is weightier or less weighty in different areas of life. But getting married doesn't fix your problems, it just rearranges them. That's not my original line. I stole that from someone else. So. But it's good, so I use it. Being married or being single, that's not the point. Look at Christ. He was single his entire life on earth. But he's going to be married for all of eternity to the church. So he has singleness and he has marriage. They're both good. They're both gifts. It is demonic to forbid marriage, to require abstinence from food. For the purpose of perceived holiness, perceived righteousness. So, we've got two groups here. The liars whose consciences are seared and those who believe and know the truth. We've already talked about the liars, so we know quite a bit about them. So those who believe and know the truth, what is this truth that they know? What is this truth that they believe that allows them to receive things with thanksgiving that God created to be received? That truth is the gospel. That truth is the fact that Jesus Christ came did all the work we were unable to do to fix the problem that we couldn't fix that results in death and permanent separation from God. The truth that Jesus, not marriage, food, or drink, is ultimately what life is about. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not a matter of being married or being single. The truth that Christ has done all the work and set us free The truth that we are no longer under law, no longer bound to rules about what we eat and don't eat, whether we marry or don't marry, but we're under grace. The truth that we no longer feel the weight of trying to work for God's approval, but we rest, thankfully, in the fact that Christ did all the work for us, and all we have to do is sit back and enjoy it. It's like going to a restaurant. You sit down, you order, someone else does the work. Someone else prepares the food, someone else cooks the food, someone else brings the food to you. You just get to sit there and eat it. You get to enjoy all the benefits without doing any of the work. It's what Christ has done. Colossians 2, 20-23 has some great things to say about this idea. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Some translations there at the end say they have no value in restraining sin. So what Paul's saying here, that Colossians is also written by Paul, he's saying 
No, you're a believer. You've died to the world. All those rules, all those regulations, don't touch this, don't eat this, don't use this. You've died to that. Those rules don't apply to you anymore because you are in Christ, not in the world. And he says, so if you've died to all that, why do you act like you're still alive to it? Why do you still do that? Why do you still forbid marriage? Why do you still abstain from foods because you think God thinks better of you if you do? Then Paul says, when you do this, it looks good on the outside. It looks righteous. It looks holy, saying, oh, I don't need that food. I have Jesus. Oh, I don't need marriage. I have Jesus. But he says, all that is is external. It looks good on the outside, but sin doesn't come from the outside. It comes from within, from the heart. And he says, abstaining from those things, not eating certain foods or not marrying, has no value, has no ability to restrain sin in your life. Only Christ can do that. Jesus refers to people like this as whitewashed sepulchers. A sepulcher is a tomb. So he's saying, like you look at it, on the outside it's whitewashed. So it's painted, it looks really nice. But what's inside? Just rotting death. Just corpses. And people who look like this, that's what they are. They look good on the outside. They look all put together. They look so beautiful, so whitewashed. But inside, there's just rotting death because they're without Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and that's you, know two things. One, that was all of us at one time. No one's born believing in Christ. Christ comes to all of us and saves us. That was me in the past. That was everyone else in the past. And know two the fact that you're here this morning hearing this is not coincidence. It's God's providence. He wants you to hear this. He wants you to know that the weight and the struggle that you have right now, the death that you know is inside, the hypocrisy, the lies, he can take those things from you through the gospel, through Christ. He can set you free. True freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from law. Freedom from trying to work to gain God's favor. The freedom to receive with thanksgiving. So that's the sober warning. Now, let's talk about the great encouragement. Verses 4 and 5, starting with verse 4. For everything God created is good. We've already said this, but it's worth saying again. People of Hiawatha, everything God has created is good. Nothing God has created is evil. Nothing God has created is bad. Nothing God has created is to be rejected out of hand thinking that it's inherently bad or evil. Now, it's important to remember God did not create everything. Sin is not created by God. The book of James makes it very clear. In James 1, he says, now when you sin, don't think that you can say this is God's fault because sin doesn't come from God. It comes from within you. God did not make sin. So there are things we reject, but not things God has created. Not food, not marriage, not things like that. We reject sin. We reject evil. We reject Satan. We reject demonic. We reject false teaching. We reject anti-gospel things. Things not created by God. Things created by our own sin or brought about through a sinful world or through demonic teaching or influence. We reject those things. But everything God created is good. James 1, and then spoiler alert for 1 Timothy 6. So we'll get there 
in a few weeks. But James 1, 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, that's God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything created by God is good. Everything God has created is a good gift and a perfect gift. Now, some of those gifts have been corrupted by sin. So marriage is a good gift. It was created perfect. Those of you who are married know that human marriages are not perfect. But that's not because of a flaw in God's design. That's because of sin's influence on marriage. Every good and perfect gift is from above. God gives us good gifts. And with him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He doesn't give us something and today say it's good, and tomorrow he'll say, ooh, actually, changed my mind, marriage is bad. All of you who are married, you need to uh, dissolve those marriages. There is no shadow. There is no shifting. There is no change. The things God has given that are good today and perfect today will be good tomorrow and perfect tomorrow, which is a very encouraging thing because the greatest gift God gave us is Christ. And if that gift isn't good tomorrow, then we're all in very serious trouble. But also, a verse from near the end of 1 Timothy 6, did you know that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy? Why does God give food? Why does God give marriage? He doesn't just give us food to sustain us, to keep us alive. That's part of it. He doesn't just give us marriage so that the human race can continue. He gives us those things for enjoyment, as he does with all the other gifts he gives us. If you're here this morning and all you've heard, whether because a church taught it badly, or you misheard it, or you heard from poor sources, that all God wants to do is give you a bunch of rules, things you can do and can't do, that all he wants to do is restrict your freedom, restrain your fun, know that that's a lie. God wants to richly provide you with everything to enjoy. Remember, everything means everything he's created, not sin. God does not want you to enjoy sin. Because sin is a weak substitute. Sin is unsatisfying. In John 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. And there he performs the first miracle, the first supernatural act that he does in his ministry on earth. He's at a wedding. There's wine at the wedding that people are drinking and they run out of wine. And so Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, it's not actually my time yet to start doing my ministry and doing miracles. And then his mom turns to the people kind of in charge of the food and says, do whatever he tells you to. And then... Jesus makes wine. He turns a bunch of water into wine. And so then they start serving this wine. And the master of the banquet, it says, which basically is like, think of a modern wedding, someone who emcees the reception, kind of keeps things moving, lets you know what's going on. Like, okay, everyone, time to sit down and eat. Okay, everyone, the dance starts in five minutes. Move your tables back. That person comes up to the groom and says, hey, this is a really great surprise. I just tasted some of that wine. It's really good. Most people, they serve the good wine at the beginning of the wedding. And then once everyone's too drunk to know the difference, they bring out poor quality wine because no one will care. But you served good wine at the beginning, and now you saved the best wine for last. And you might think, how does this relate to what we're talking about other than the fact that it's a miracle related to food? It relates 
Because those of you who think that Christ came to restrain you and restrict you and that sin is going to give you freedom, that's like getting drunk on the cheap wedding wine. You think you've got something really great, but you're actually too drunk on sin to know that what you've got isn't that good. What you've got is a cheap substitute. And you don't realize that Jesus is standing right there offering you the best wine. Wine that's better than the good wine that was served at the beginning. That's what Jesus offers to you. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything created by God is good. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. So then it says in verse 4, Nothing is to be rejected if it's, if it's received with thanksgiving. It's a little odd. Why does thanksgiving factor into that? Why is thanksgiving a prerequisite for not rejecting and receiving? The reason is to receive with thanksgiving is to acknowledge that you're not the one who did the work, that Christ is. When we receive food, when we receive the gifts of marriage, when we receive those things, other good gifts that God has made with thanksgiving, what we're proclaiming is, I didn't do this myself. This isn't about me, it's about Jesus. I don't have to work to be good at this. I don't have to work at this so God will accept me. I can just accept it. I can just receive it. I can just be thankful for it and bask in the glory of the work that Christ has done. That's why thanksgiving is a prerequisite. It shows acceptance of that gospel grace. And without words, it proclaims that to people. I, uh, there's a group of guys that I work with that will get together uh, less frequently coming out of the pandemic. But before that, probably every other week or so, and we'd play games on Wednesday nights. And I would usually host. And the guys would come, and we'd play games, and we'd order food. And I would have beverages there that I would provide. And usually, like, once every six weeks or once every two months, one of the guys would either pay me extra money when we did food, because usually I would order and they'd all pay for their share. Or they'd just bring like a 12-pack of pop or some beverage, and they would do it because they felt that they owed me something because I was providing beverages, providing the space that we played games in. But that's not how I was thinking. I just did it, well, mostly out of generosity, partly because at the end of the night, it's nice if you're the one hosting that you can just go upstairs and go to bed instead of driving home, especially in Minnesota winters. But, like... I enjoy being generous. I enjoy sharing things with people. I enjoy doing that and not getting repaid, partly because that's what Christ has done for me. And these guys, when they do that, they show that mindset that we all have apart from Christ, a mindset that finds it difficult to receive with thanksgiving because we feel that something is owed. We feel we have to repay. Finally, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now this does not mean made holy by the word of God in prayer. This does not mean like an incantation, like Harry Potter, like, oh, I'm going to sit down and eat my food. I have to pray for it first so that I don't choke on it or it doesn't make me sick or something like that. Notice it doesn't say prayers, it says prayer. So what is this word of God? What is prayer that makes the good gifts of God holy? This word is Jesus, ultimately. Jesus is the ultimate word of God. And also, all the words of God spoken about Christ in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. 
Why do we not reject? Why do we receive with thanksgiving? Because the word of God in his death and resurrection has made all the good gifts of God holy. He has shown that receiving with thanksgiving is better than working for it. The same with prayer. Prayer in general is talking to God, is calling out to God in time of need. It's acknowledging there are things we can't fix on our own or deal with on our own, so we call out to God for help. That's what this is saying. It's made holy by the fact that Christ has come, died for sin, been raised from the dead, and given us the opportunity and the ability to just receive with thanksgiving from God and not to work for things. It reminds us that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can enter into God's presence boldly, not timidly, and ask for help when we need it. Ask for mercy. People of Hiawatha, be encouraged. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's been made holy through the gospel. The greatest good that God has given us is his son, that death and resurrection. If you're sitting here this morning and you have not received that gift and you're still working for that, you're still working for God, no, one, it's futile. That gap between you is so large you can never cross it. The debt you owe is so big you can never pay it. But also, not only is it futile, it's unnecessary because Christ already did it. This is what Christ has for you. Not law, not rule, not regulation. Freedom. The freedom to receive with thanksgiving. The freedom to enjoy what God has provided. The freedom to delight in the fact that everything God created is good. As we close, remember this. People of Hiawatha, what are you devoted to? Are you devoted to Jesus Christ? Are you devoted to the one who's given so much, who's done all the work? And if not, don't think to yourself, oh, I'm not devoted, I better work to become devoted, which completely defeats everything we just talked about in this passage. If you're not devoted to Christ, pray that he increases that devotion. Spend time with the body. Think about other things in life you're devoted to. How do you become devoted to those things? You don't think to yourself, oh, I have to work so hard to be devoted to this. No, you enjoy it. And the more you enjoy it, the more time you want to spend on it or with it, if it's a person or a thing or whatever it is you're devoted to. It happens. And that enjoyment continues to increase and that devotion continues to increase. So it is with Christ. As we spend time with him, as we look at him, he becomes more desirable, he becomes more beautiful, not because of what we do, but because he continues to reveal more of himself to us. He becomes the thing we want to be devoted to, not the thing we feel we have to work to be devoted to. Two, beware deceitful, demonic, insincere teaching of liars. Beware those who forbid things, who try and pile law and rule onto you rather than freedom. Three, remember that law and rule cannot restrain sinful indulgence. Only the gospel can. Only Christ can fully restrain sin. Only Christ has conquered sin. Only Christ can kill sin in us. And fourth, Jesus is the greatest good and perfect gift given by God. Receive him today with thanksgiving, whether for the first time or the billionth time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us not to work, 
not to do, but to receive with thanksgiving what you have already done. That is difficult to do. We want to work. We want to be our own God. We want to be righteous in our own eyes. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to look to you, to trust in you, to rest from labor in you. Amen.